Last week, Monday, June 12th, I posted Season 1, Episode 2, Keep the Fire Burning, which featured the story of a six-year-old boy who with his family was deported to Siberia. There were numerous technical glitches in that program, which detracted unacceptably from its quality. What follows is a re-recording of this episode. After it posts, I will delete the old episode, which is not up to my desired standards of quality. Mastering the complexities of podcasting has been an ongoing learning process, one in which I hope to do better and better in the future. This is Season 1, Broadcast 2 of Between the Presets, a weekly podcast by me, Rudy Statner. The title of today's podcast is Keep the Fire Burning. During this podcast, I will tell the story of Mordecai L., a little boy, now an elderly man, but he was a little boy back in 1939, when at the age of six, he was deported to Siberia by the Soviets, by the communists, uh, after having fled German-occupied Poland to Soviet-occupied Poland. He was considered to be an enemy of the Soviet Union. Before telling the story of young Mordechai and his family, how they were deported to Siberia by the Soviets. I will digress and make mention of an event that took place 70 years ago, today and in the days following, under communist rule in East Germany. On June 16, 1953, a call was issued for a protest strike against a number of measures taken by the communist puppet government of the Soviets in the eastern zone of Germany. Under communist rule, freedom of speech and freedom of religion were harshly restricted. In addition to that, there was also a series of economic measures in which private industry was forcibly collectivized. Even though there were some small businesses, even these businesses were under pressure to submit to ownership by the, by the communist East German government. These measures caused shortages, which impacted the ability of East German families to provide themselves with basic consumer goods. The final measure which sparked 
angry protests was a 10% increase in the work quotas of East German workers, accompanied by no raise in pay whatsoever. The marches spread from Berlin to other cities across Eastern Germany and morphed into a protest against communist rule in general. Buildings owned by the Socialist Unity Party, the Communist Party of Eastern Germany, were attacked, and the local East German police ended up going going to the Soviets for help in putting down what was rapidly becoming a uh, full-scale rebellion against communist rule. Around 50 German demonstrators were killed, and some Soviet soldiers who refused to fire upon the East German demonstrators were executed. The June 16th revolt, which lasted about a week before it was finally put down, showed the world the desperation of people living under communism to experience a better way of life. A recurring theme in communist propaganda is how communists are the antidote to fascism and Nazism. Despite being ostensible opposites, the communists were remarkably similar to the Nazis in their willing to use imprisonment, persecution, secret police spying, as well as their use of the specter of an ever-present enemy. The communists tended towards propaganda which raised the specter of a class enemy, and the Nazis tended to invoke national and racial anonymity as a device of unifying the population and consolidating their rule. In August of 1939, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany concluded a treaty of friendship. On each side, they generated propaganda extolling the similarities of Nazism, of National Socialism, and of Communism. One part of their agreement was to split Poland into a Nazi sector, a German-ruled sector, and a Soviet-ruled sector. During this time, many Jews, realizing the extreme danger they were under Nazi rule, fled to, po- fled to the Soviet sector of Poland, where it seemed that there was a better chance of survival. This was the choice made by Mordecai's parents for him and his family. They were the lucky ones. They made it over the border. There were Jews who, when they fled into Soviet sector of Poland, were turned back by the Soviets to the Nazis, where they were deported to concentration camps and where most of them died. Despite their 
good fortune in making it to a place where they would not be murdered outright. Mordecai and his family, since they were enemies of Nazi Germany, were also considered to be enemies of the Soviet Union. As such, they were deported to Siberia by train in conditions that more resembled the transportation of cargo than of human beings. This was a trip that lasted about a week. It should be noted that while the United States spans four time zones, the continental United States, the Soviet Union spans 11 time zones. So this trip to Siberia for Mordecai and his family lasted close to a week. Upon arrival in Siberia, they were housed in a large barracks, keeping about 400 people in close quarters. The Polish-Jewish deportees were not alone in the camp to which they had been deported. There were prisoners who had been in that camp in Siberia for close to 20 years, following the end of the Soviet Civil War, which raged in the Soviet Union from 1918 to 1921. These prisoners were white Russians, as opposed to red Russians. In other words, these were the anti-communist forces who fought the Soviet Union, formerly the Russian Empire, being turned into a communist dictatorship. It was one of the white Russian prisoners who saved the lives of Mordecai and his family and the other deportees with a piece of advice that was instrumental in preventing slows, slow and painful deaths. One day, soon after his arrival in Siberia, meaning that he was approaching 20 years of imprisonment in Siberia, this man who Mordecai described as having a beard and long hair approached Mordecai and his friend with a chilling prediction. He told him, Y'all are going to die. Mordecai was shocked and asked what he meant by that. The man explained that at night when people in their beds were in their beds, rats would come out and they would bite and chew on the people who were lying in bed. And he said no one ever recovered from these rat bites. And certainly the people in charge of the camp were not going to invest any significant amount of money in restoring them to good health. He told Mordecai and his friend that there was one thing that they could do to prevent rat bites. And that was to keep a fire burning constantly in the barracks. The smoke would be unpleasant but it would also be unpleasant to the rats. And the rats would stay away from the barracks and therefore would not be entering it and biting the people there. So Mordecai and a young friend of his who were 
was about two years older than him, divided between themselves the task of collecting the wood and kindling the fire. It was by alternating the tasks, the two boys were able to spend some time recovering from the unpleasantness of collecting wood in a chilling climate. Kai, his young friend, and the old Russian prisoner moved forward in their respective lives with a great deal of merit. In reflecting on the story, I find myself wondering about the old white Russian prisoner of war. How did he keep his spirit in 20 years of imprisonment so that he was not a broken man? Between starvation, being close to starvation, um, hard labor, biting climate, he still thought about other people and still thought enough to tell these two young Jewish boys information that saved their lives and hundreds of Jewish deportees with them. It is also fortuitous that uh, Mordechai and his friend listened to the advice. They immediately took it to heart and they made it their mission there in the Siberian camp to collect wood and to, as the old man said, to keep that fire burning. There is a Jewish saying that he who saves one life, it is as though he had saved the entire world. And I can save Mordechai, his unnamed friend and the old man who was a Russian uh, prisoner, a prisoner of war after the uh, Russian Civil War, that the merit of those three individuals is enormous. Eventually, Mordecai, his family, and the other deportees with them were transported from Siberia to Uzbekistan in the southern region of the former Soviet Union uh, in a one of the republics that bordered on Iran. Although the climate was far more pleasant than it was in Siberia, the scarcity of food continued to be an issue uh, for the uh, deportees. Mordechai and his family also made contact with the local Bukharian Jewish population who spoke not Yiddish but a language called Bukharian related to related to Farsi, a kind of old-fashioned version of uh, the Persian language. Despite initial difficulties in communication, they established a commonality. The Bukharian Jews at one point, Mordechai mentioned, lent a uh, Torah scroll to the Polish Jewish deportees so that they were actually able to have uh, 
Torah readings, something that was not uh, possible in Siberia, where one certainly could not smuggle in a uh, Torah scroll into an actual camp. Although there is hunger and discomfort of climate, Mordecai did not emphasize that so much in his retelling of his uh, exile in the Soviet Union with his family. He mentioned the pleasures of learning Torah. If someone had a few pages of a religious book, a prayer book, a book of Mishnah or Talmud, that was like gold. And if someone was learned, if they were a walking encyclopedia, this person was not just looked up to, but viewed as a source of life and of continuity. Mordecai, thank God, did very well later on in life. He was accomplished in business and extremely generous in activities on and in and donations to charity. He always expressed a deep gratitude for not only his material blessings, but his uh, ability to learn, um, his opportunities to live a fully Jewish life in every sense of the word. If there's anything I learned from Mordecai, it was gratitude. Once, uh, when you are given a gift, to always treasure it. It always gladdens my heart when I see a person who has survived life under the communists or life under the Nazis, who survived those trials, to see them doing well in America, in Israel, wherever they may find themselves. Conversely, when I see them suffering anything at all, I feel a sense of suffering with them. I had another neighbor who spent his early childhood in Uzbekistan uh, before uh, leaving to the United States and to Israel. He told me a story about his father who ran a textile factory in Tashkent, I believe it was. Since this was under Soviet rule, any type of religious observance was certainly not accommodated and actually discouraged, if not out, outright prohibited. My friend and his family were staunchly Orthodox Jews who kept the Shabbos, who kept the holidays, and who kept the dietary laws which was a major challenge under communist rule. My friend's father, since he could not openly keep Shabbos, would walk to the factory on Saturday morning and quietly say prayers that he had committed to memory uh, as he walked around the factory. The majority of the workers were Muslims, and quite a few of them were 
followers of Islamic tradition. He had a series of arrangements that he made that he would not directly perform any labors prohibited on Shabbos, such as turning on and off lights, writing, uh, running any type of machinery. But there was a seamless way of communicating with the Muslim workers on Saturday so that the jobs that needed to be done for the factory to run got done. In turn, my friend's father did everything within his power to facilitate the religious observance of the Muslims who worked under his supervision. Although it was still difficult, people living in Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, they were supervised a little bit less closely because they considered the most people there considered the communists to be outsiders. I'm saying most of the indigenous population. And this made living in the southern republics of the former Soviet Union much more desirable than living in, say, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, where the supervision was much more tight. Some Jews went off the grid entirely, went to underground Jewish schools. Others went to government schools where communism was taught and maintained some level of Jewish education outside of school. But there were, under Soviet rule, there were there was a desire for people to cling to their religious traditions. This was done not only within families and within circles of friends. It was also done by some underground organizations, such as uh, Lubavitch uh, and others that maintained um, secret schools, that maintained uh, a network to keep religious observance alive. Undoubtedly, there were Christians and Muslims who also had underground networks that kept their respective faiths alive. I mention this story of my friend's father in the textile factory, not as a change of topic, but to give, give the listener an idea of the type of cooperation that uh, enabled people to get by day to day and maintain their loyalty to a religious way of life. I find stories of enduring faith under totalitarian, totalitarian regimes to be greatly inspiring. Whenever I listen to people who have lived under dictatorships, who have suffered from some sort of deprivation or stress, I like to listen and to learn from them. People from Nazi Germany, people who lived under communism or other forms of dictatorship, 
I, I really treasure their stories. Also, it is, uh, it is uplifting and inspiring to listen to, to hear stories of triumph over alcoholism, drug addiction, or the various forms of mental illness. Whether in a free country or in a country where the people are enslaved and controlled, there are always stories that can uplift and inspire us. In the course of my daily life, I try to collect those stories, and today I presented a couple of them. I thank my dear readers for listeners for listening to my um, uh, story today, and I hope to have a uh, June 19th broadcast, a podcast, and uh, again, you have a good rest of your week.